We are going to finish this one up this evening, and as we do come to it, let me remind you one more time, okay, of the overall context, or really the bird's eye view of, of this book. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to Galatians as he's addressing the churches that were in the region of Galatia. So there are several churches, several believers, all right? But he's writing to these churches for this main reason. False teachers called Judaizers have begun to creep into this area and have begun to sneak in and creep into these churches. And as they have done so, these false teachers have begun to teach, as Paul called it, another gospel in chapter 1 and verse 6. They've begun to teach a false gospel of adding works to the finished work of Christ. And in teaching this false gospel, these false teachers were perverting the true, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And in turn, they were causing great chaos in the hearts and minds of God's people, which were uh, also causing some division, no doubt, among, among the churches. So with all this going on, Paul picks up his pen and he addresses this issue to the churches of Galatia. He does so lovingly, passionately, but yet very sternly and declares to them and defends at the same time the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He defends that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law. For he said this, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 2 and verse 16. So understand something. I hope you've got this solidified by now after we've gone through this book together for the past year. Understand something. That our salvation is God's free gift to us. It is given by grace. It is accepted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing minus nothing. That's where salvation is found. Salvation is of the Lord. And Paul makes that very plain. And it should solidify that in our hearts and minds as we've gone through this book together. All right? But as we come to the end of chapter number 6 and finish it up this evening, keep in mind as we've come here, Paul has, he has gone from the arguments for the gospel to applications of it. And he's been given some great instruction, especially in his last chapter, chapter 6, some very practical applications that he's been given for us to live by. And one of the first ones we came across was, was this one. To restore a brother that's overtaken in a fall. Uh, listen, just as a reminder, we are all made of the same dirt. Did you know that? Hope you do. We're all made of the same dirt. We all face the same temptation that is common to man. And therefore, since we're made of the same dirt, face the same common temptation, then that means we have the same capability of being overtaken in a fall. And when that happens as believers, we have the responsibility, if it be possible, to do this, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, consider thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And then as we moved on, we saw some more practical advice, practical instruction and application from the pen of Paul, and that was this one, helping a burdened brother. Again, we are all in the same world. Are you in the same world with me? Two of you, all right, rest of you, praying for you, amen, all right, or pray for us, I don't know, maybe it's better over there, okay. But we're all living the same world and therefore we face some same stresses and sorrows and difficulties of life. 
But as we do, what are we as part of the family of God to do? Well, Paul tells us. He simply instructs us to bear one another's burdens, to share in each other's burdens, lift each other up physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it is the case may be, to bear one another's burdens. Basically, we are to to do this. We are to encourage each, each other. Encourage each other. And again, I can't stress enough how important it is to edify one another. Encourage each other. Because a little bit of encouragement goes a long way. You put a little encourage into somebody, hence encouragement. You put a little courage in somebody, that helps them go just a little bit further down, down the Christian race of life. Encouragement goes longer and further than you could ever imagine. And then we saw this, another practical application of sowing and reaping. And listen, be reminded that when it comes to sowing and reaping, whatever we sow, whatever seed we plant in life, either it be a spiritual seed or a fleshly carnal seed, we're still going to receive that same type of kind or crop, all right? You sow to your spirit, you're going to reap that. You sow to your flesh, you're going to reap to that. Whatever you sow, whatever you give to, whatever you plant to or towards, you're going to receive the same. I, uh, I, want to, I want to give a testimony about what God's done even recently. It's been pretty amazing. You know, I'm, I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter. It's all public knowledge anyway. So we, we took on some missionaries, what, two Sunday week ago, right? Took on four missionaries. So Sunday a week ago, and uh, I'm thankful for that. I want to do more of that. And then this past Sunday, as we took up an offering, it's been one of the biggest offerings we've ever had in a long time. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think if you sow your, the, the seed of, of, of righteousness and spiritual seed, you're going to reap the same. I think that's God's doing, the showing we're doing the right thing, moving forward. Now, that's not always a litmus test as far as giving goes, but it's just a little blessing that God gives us from time to time, letting us know, hey, look, keep it up. Keep going forward. And so whatever we sow towards, we're going to reap of, of the same. All right? So keep that in mind. But as we come to the end of Galatians chapter 6 here, Paul is signing off. He is uh, concluding this, this text, this letter to the Galatian believers. And here's what he says. All right? Look at verse number 11 with me. And we'll just finish it up and read down to the end of the chapter. And the Bible says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, as we begin this text last Wednesday, we read these verses and took note last time that uh, this main point we're trying to draw from this, uh, from this portion of Scripture is this. We get a glimpse of motivation here, all right? 
the motivation from Paul as well as the Judaizers from this portion of Scripture. We get a glimpse of why they do what they do, why Paul does what he does, and why these false teachers do what they do. And by the way, their motivation is not the same. It's completely different. And last time we took note of Paul's motivation and his motive for living, for serving, and it's found really in one word. We can see it highlighted at least in, in general here. And it's this powerful, all-encompassing word of love. You can see Paul's love here, his love for the brethren, especially as you see in verse number 11, as he said, look, you see how large a letter I have written unto you. We learn that Paul normally would have these letters that bear his name, or, or at least his, as he's the author, he would have a clerk or secretary to write for him. We believe that he would do that because of some kind of eye trouble he had suffered. And, uh, but that's what we would believe or think, potentially at least. But we see a little something special here. He lets them know, look, I wrote this, at least this conclusion here, signing off. This is my signature. This is my letters. This is, this is my words that I have written for you. How large a letter, meaning the large letters, how big they were, because he couldn't see you too well, right? He did this, and whether they realize it or not, this little insert here at the beginning of the conclusion of the letter is significant because it shows this truth, how Paul truly loved these people how he cared for them so deeply on a personal level for them. He cared for them so deeply. And there's no mistaking his love for them. The love for the brethren was a motivating factor for Paul. And once again, I want to remind us that should be a motivating factor for all of us as well as we serve one another in love. As the body of Christ serves each other in love. And by the way, that should set us apart from anything else that this world or that is in this world. Even Jesus said this in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. But what is this he speaks of? If you have love one to another. The love for the brethren should be a motivating factor. Let me ask you a question before we move on. Do you love the family of God. Do you love the believers that are part of Boiling Springs Baptist Church, your fellow brother and sister, in the Lord? If you don't, you probably should get to loving them because you're going to be seeing them for a long time. You know, eternity is a long time. But love for the brethren. But what else was the motivation to him when it came to love? Love for the brethren. Also, love for the Lord. That was the ultimate one. The ultimate one. In verse 14, he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he verse said in verse 17, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And now the marks here he was talking about are the cuts or scars that he received as a result of him preaching the gospel and living for the Lord Jesus Christ as he traveled from city to city, country to country, spreading the good news. But why would he ever endure such hardship and difficulties and suffer so much pain? Why, why would he be so motivated to go from one place to another, even going to Lystra where his stone left for dead, get back up and go back in the same city where the people stoned him? Why would he do that? What, what would motivate a man to do that? Well, again, one word, love. First, 
Christ's love for him, which is seen at the cross, even as he made mention of it in verse 14, that he would glory save in the cross of Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knew that was proven a fact of God's love for him. What? The cross is. That's God's proven fact of his love for us. As the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth, that word means show, commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Of course, you know John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. We know Jesus did that. And his truth changed Paul's life forever. What changed it? That God loved him. That he would die, be buried, and rise again the third day. All for Paul. And listen, he did it all for you too. Not just Paul and other disciples, but for the whole world. But this truth changed his life and Christ's love for Paul, which birthed Paul's love for Christ. Because listen, Christ's love for us is what connects our love for him. In John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. So love, listen, have a recap as we jump to the end of this message. Paul's motivation was this. It was love. That's what caused him to live for the Lord. That's what caused him to love the Lord and love the family of God, love these people here in Galatia. That's what caused him to give his life for Christ, what caused him to even endure suffering all because he loved the Lord and the Lord primarily loved him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. His, his motivation was love. But this motivation was far different than what we see of these false teachers and these Judaizers that have come down to Galatia during this time. And I want to zero in tonight on that last motivation, the motivation of the Judaizers. All right, so look at verse number 12 with me. And the Bible says this, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you, they there, he's talking about the false teachers, Judaizers, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. He's saying, look, they're hypocrites. Don't, don't even pay me attention. But desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. So what's the motivation from the Judaizers here? Well, number one, here's a motivation that we can see in no particular order. But number one, we see this. Fear was a motivation on their behalf. Now, last Wednesday, I asked you to give me uh, examples of different types of uh, motivations. And, of course, fear was mentioned as a motivator. And it's true that fear can be. Uh, fear can be a powerful motivator. It can be a powerful tool. Let me ask you a question. Are you afraid of anything? Yeah, me too. Uh, who here is afraid of spiders? Anybody? Okay, anybody afraid of heights? If, if you're not afraid of heights, let me get this 20-foot A-frame ladder that we had on the platform. I've got these, these three lights right here in the middle that need to be changed. And I got really close to them, and the ladder began to wobble, and I was motivated to come down pretty quick, all right? But uh, there's some folks who are afraid of heights. There are some folks who are afraid of dogs. There are folks who are afraid of mice. There are folks who are afraid of uh, snakes. I'm, I'm one of those. Uh, only good snake's a dead one. Hey, man, you know. But well, some folks are just afraid of these things. 
We have a fear of something. But when you have that fear and you face that fear or you come face to face with it, what do you do? Do you fight that fear or what you're afraid of? Do you flight, go in flight mode, run from it, or do you freeze? That's basic, the basic three uh, responses to, to fear. Or maybe you have a combination of all three, I don't know. But we all have a fear of something, and that fear can, it really can motivate us. Fear is a motivator. And just on a side note, though, we think fear always on a bad thing. But sometimes fear can be a good motivator as well, such as the fear of the Lord. The Bible says this in Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 14, 27, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. In Proverbs 16, 6, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So listen, a healthy fear of the Lord can be and is a great motivator. Because even in these scriptures we read, it'll help keep you from the wickedness of this world. But when it comes to the fear that I'm talking about, at least I believe the Bible's trying to teach us, is not a fear that God's going to hurt me, though He can, all right? The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 31, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Amen. He can, but that's not what we're talking about. Rather, the fear of the Lord is more of this. It's a fear that is rooted in a deep respect and honor and reverence. And because of that respect and honor and reverence, it should cause us to fear to the point of disappointing and hurting our great God. The fear of offending Him, you see. And it would seem that the fear of the Lord is something that is missing in our day and age. Oh, yeah, it's always been missing in the world's eye. But it seems even missing among professing believers today. The fear, the fear of, of the Lord seems to be missing. You say, why do you, why do you, why do you say that? Why do you think it's missing? Well, it would seem that people, folks are afraid to offend anyone and everyone except the Lord. Sometimes people could care less if they offend God or not. Yes, we see that in the world, but look, we see it among believers today as well. But we must return to a true reverence and fear of God. But in our text, that's not the type of fear they have. These Judaizers did not fear the Lord. That was not their type of fear of motivation. Rather, I believe is more of a fear of man that these Judaizers were at least using as part of their motivation. Again, as a tool, wrongly, I might add, to get these Galatians into believing their false teaching of a works-type salvation. Look at verse number 12 again with me, if you will. All right, look at it with me. Verse number 12. As many as desire, meaning their wish, their earnest want, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, meaning to put on a good display, all right? To make a fair show in the flesh, they, and look at this next word, constrain you. Now this word constrain here, it means to compel. It means to necessitate, to drive by force. It conveys the idea of putting pressure on someone to pressure them by even threats, force, or persuasion. It would be like a, um, 
if I put it this way, a peer pressure on steroids. All right? that's, that's what they were doing. This is what they were doing. They were using the fear of man to persuade and constrain forcibly these Galatian believers to respond and believe like them. They were using the fear of man as their fear. And we know what the Bible says about the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. But this is what the false teachers, these Judaizers were doing. They were putting pressure on the Galatians. They were forcing their teaching upon them. Uh, They were putting these Galatians in in fear through their intimidating, high-pressure type of tactics, uh, through their trained and educated semantical persuasion. I have no doubt these guys were very, very good orators, all right? As they came from from, uh, uh, Jerusalem area all the way down this Gentile place of Galatia, trying to persuade these people to believe like them. I have no doubt they were very good with semantics and in their speech. Maybe they would say things like, well, we know what Paul has taught you, but here's what the law says. We we know what Paul did, but you ever heard of Abraham and what he did? If you don't do it our way, then there's no way you could ever truly be saved because, well, we come from Jerusalem. I can see the persuasion that they're using, putting people in fear and this type of intimidation, this type of of fear to compel and constrain them to believing, as Paul put it, another gospel. They would constrain them into adding works to the finished work of Christ. And in the text, overall context, of this outward show of doing this, of being circumcised in order to be saved. And look, when Paul was writing about this constraining, he knew their tactics. He knew what it meant. He knew how to use this type of fear as well. He wasn't writing about something he didn't already know and even do himself before he ever came to Christ. He knew those tactics. He used them well when he said this in Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11. As he's giving a uh, testimony, I believe this is, uh, ooh, I can't remember. I think it's Felix. I might be wrong on that. But Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and here's the word, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So listen, before Paul's ever born again, he would compel the saints, he would constrain believers to blaspheme his words, his testimony. He would pressure them into recanting their faith. He would use fear to his advantage to get that accomplished. The fear of prison, the fear of punishment, the fear of persecution, even the very fear of death to get what he wanted. And that's what these, these Judaizers were doing as well. So Paul is very, very versed in their tactics. He knows about this fear, uh, this fear of motivation. He used it himself. But his motivation changed. Of course, we know that. But he knows about this fear. These Judaizers, that's what they were doing. They were constraining them, putting them into fear. Why? To get them to be circumcised in their, their view, this is how you truly become saved. But this was, 
this is all wrong. This, this motivation of fear to get them to do what they wanted to do was, was wrong. Why? Because this fear was not pointing them to the Lord, but rather it's pointing them to themselves. This fear was not drawing them closer to God. No, this was pushing them further and bringing them closer to them and their false teaching, which leads to another motivation, motivating factor, and it's this one, lastly. Yes, they were motivated and motivating by fear, but also this way, their pride. <laughs> their pride was a motivating factor in their life. Look at verse 12 again. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh. Then look at verse 13. For neither they themselves who were circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. He's saying they're a bunch of hypocrites. It's all a show. It's all for pride's sake. But these false teachers, listen, they didn't come down to the region of Galatia. They didn't come down to these churches. They didn't come down to these people because they loved them and wanted to help them and point them to the love of Christ. Rather, here's what they did. They came so they could make themselves look good to make a fair show in the flesh. They wanted to impress people around them, especially the ones that probably sent them down there. They wanted to be in the good standing with the powers that be kind of thing. And these false teachers are men pleasers at the core. They're people pleasers. I'm telling you what they are. Every false teacher is a people pleaser. And the one they want to please the most is themselves. Mark it down. But the Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap themselves teachers, having itching ears, men pleasers. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So that's all they were. That's all they were. Men pleasers. But to impress those that sent them, they would need to have done this. They needed to get a good number of quote-unquote converts to report back to the powers that be. You see, they would need to report back to headquarters of how many of these poor old Gentiles they have finally got to submit to their rules and regulations of how many Gentile Galatians walk the aisle to express their willingness to be circumcised, you know, that kind of thing. And just on a side note, if we're not careful, even as believers today, if we're not careful, we can get caught up in this type of motivation that they're caught up in, to impress others, be men pleasers. I've heard preachers ask before, how many did you have saved last month? Or how many did you baptize last month as, as a way to measure success and, and and folks listen I'm not saying that's wrong we need to be praying people get saved amen okay and we've seen some kids get saved recently and desire to follow the Lord and believers baptism and we'll be doing that very soon thankful for that but it's almost as if when people ask these questions they're measuring success that way but is that how God measures success does he measure success by the numbers? Because if so, the big church is doing really good. And the little church is not so much. But is that how he measures success in the numbers? I don't think it's it. It can't be. There's some smaller churches that are doing really well. 
They have the touch of God on some larger churches. Mm, just don't know. Is that a measure of success? But what does it mean to be successful in the Christian life then? So I've thought about that often, I really have. And I need to think about it because it keeps me in check. I think, I, think it, I think it can be found in this statement that every born-again believer desires to hear one day from the lips of their Savior. You know what that statement is? Well done, thou good and faithful. I think God measures success in that one word. The Bible says it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. I think when we get to heaven, we hear those words. It ain't going to be, man, you had a big old church, man. High five. <laughs> or shake his head and say, your church is little. I don't know what's wrong with you. But I think it'll be well done. Regardless of numbers, regardless of whatever, it's going to be well done, thou good and faithful. We'll meet the fruit of that success, faithfulness, if I can say it that way, that way, we'll meet it one day. So that's what encourages us to even be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord. Be faithful in witnessing. Hey, look, God's the one that gives the increase with his plant, with his water. God gives the increase. Be faithful. But back to our text. All right, it's kind of a side note there, but Back to our text, we can see these false teachers here. Their motivation was, well, it was this, this. It was all about them. They want to make a fair show. Want to, man, I hope that, that uh, uh, high priest so-and-so back in Jerusalem is happy with this. Man, we, we really constrain these people. We get circumcised. Man, he's going to give me a pat on the back. It's going to be good. That was their motivation. It was wrong. See, Paul's motivation was love. Liberty in the Lord, love. That's what, this, that's what Galatians is about as well. The liberty we have in, in Christ. But the motivation of these Judaizers was fear and pride. It was all about them. How they could glory in their flesh. Look at verse 13 again. For neither they themselves who were circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised and a glory in your flesh. Man, that's what they want. But again, Paul reminded us of his. Look at verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, meaning I'm going to glory nothing else but this, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I, and I am to the world. So let me ask you a question. As Paul is signing off here, we're going to sign off from Galatians as well. What is your motivation? Your motivation to serve, your motivation to, to live, what is it? It's really one of two loves. Well, let's boil it all the way down. I mean, down as far as we can get it. It's one of two loves. My motivation is love for God, is love for me. Or it's my love for myself. That's what it boils down to. That's really the two motivations of life. You can see a bunch of fruit off of those roots, but that's where it boils down to. Paul, his love was for the Lord. The Judaizers, their love 